Welcome back to Act Root to Fruit. My name is Marcel, I'm a psychologist, and uh, I am. Uh, what am I trying to do here? I'm. I'm working to. Uh... <sighs> there it goes. Oh, it's showing up right away. It's all good. It's all good. So um, this show is about is about digging into the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences, ACT, FAP. IBT, whatever else there is, compassion-focused therapy, to uh, to help myself and and other other new learners uh, be as precise as possible with this this sweet-ass technology that my my fantastic guest today has has helped pioneer. Hey, Jen. Hey. I'm here today with Jen Gregg, who has been uh, um, nice enough to. To join me to talk about this stuff, um, Jen's a full professor at uh, the Department of Psychology at San Jose State University, and also works as a clinical psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, primarily working with cancer patients, um, their families. She's a peer-reviewed ACT trainer, and has been in this in this ACT world for a long, long time. And and Jen, what I know that you're really active too in ACBS right now. What are what are some of your roles, I'm sure there's more than one. Well, um, I just finished being the program chair for the ACBS conference this summer, which was lots of fun. Yeah, that was, I have to, let me just, I say that was, that was awesome. I was, I was, uh, you know, concerned, obviously. That, you, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah, but I, I thought that was like, I, I can't imagine how much time, how much time of your life that took. So just want to give you a big fat pat on the back for everything you did there. Well, thank you. I got to do it with Matt Boone, who is a absolute wonderful, dear, awesome, amazing person and yeah. great friend of mine. So, you know, when you get to do something, even when it's a lot of work with somebody that you never get to see that is super fun to hang out with, it it, it worked out. And yeah. thankfully, the conference did not like end up being some sort of sad thing that we pretended not happen, which, yeah. you know, we thought it was 50-50 at least. <laughs> that was going to happen. To do the men in black pen afterwards. Or... <laughs> yeah, like, okay, nobody ever speak of that ever again. We're just going to pretend like that was not something that happened at ACBS. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously when I was asked, it was long before that was a consideration. So we, yeah. we felt lucky that it did not implode on itself. Yeah, no, it was great. I'm sure. I'm sure you learned a lot for for to to, to consult for this upcoming uh, endeavor. Yes, yes. So that's the my main role in ACBS now is that I help with conference planning and okay. uh, conference strategy. Uh, historically, I've done a lot of work in what you, the Developing Nations Committee is what we've always called it, but it's sort of for um, sort of helping support clinicians and researchers in low and middle income countries, and that's a huge like part of my heart yeah I've been lucky enough to support a lot of different projects around the world and nice yeah nice. yeah well thanks for supporting this one today yeah thanks for I, having me yeah I also want to mention that you are uh, of a, a, a deep steeped act lineage you got your PhD with uh, Dr. Steve Hayes yeah. I did I actually um I don't know if this is a good time to tell a funny story but Please. um in 1995, I took an undergrad class at the University of Nevada. I was an undergrad student at University of Nevada. I'm from Alaska, but I ended up in, in Nevada for undergrad. And um, 
I took an undergrad class from Robin Walser. She really? was my wow. uh, teacher. She was a grad student at the time. And in this class, she mentioned ACT and, you know, it was a theories class. So I was sort of learning about all the different theories and she mentioned ACT and I was like, oh, ah! you know, like that. I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh yeah, that totally sounds fascinating. And, um, I saw a flyer in the hallway that was targeted towards graduate students, not towards me, mm-hmm. that said that there was an ACT workshop coming up. Um, and in the early days of ACT, Steve uh, Hayes would um, do these weekend workshops up in Tahoe. And um, so he was advertising it to the graduate students as an opportunity to get some sort of quick, deep learning in ACT. And um, I saw the flyer and I, not knowing anything about anything, called him on the phone in his office and said, I love ACT and I would like to go to this workshop. <laughs> wow. And you're what year at that point in undergrad? I was a junior, I guess, in okay. undergrad, no idea of anything. Wow. And bless him, he was very kind. He said, well, um, you know, maybe you should come by my research lab meeting and see if you can get a little bit broader perspective than what you might have gotten in this, you know, one week of talking about it in an undergrad class. And I was like, okay. And I showed up at his lab meeting. I understood not a single word of anything that was (laughs) (laughs) nothing. It was, you know, just the worst kind of like moment of like, are they, is this English? Are they, are they speaking? (laughs) Maybe there's another language here that I don't know. And the meeting was over and one of his advanced graduate students said, you know, Steve asked me to talk to you a little bit about the workshop. He said that you're interested in going. And I was like, yes, I very much, I want to go to this. And uh, this graduate student, Liz Gifford is her name. She said, you know, it's experiential, right? And I didn't know what the word experiential meant, (laughs) but I didn't want to admit that. So I was like, yes, of course, of course I know that, of course. So I end up in the woods with a whole bunch of psychologists doing this act workshop that was very, very experiential. Yeah. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. So Amazing. 25 years later. Here you here are. Yeah. You know what experiential means now. <laughs> so, and I kind of think it was good I didn't know then. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, I appreciate you sharing that for anybody listening who hears some words they don't know. That doesn't mean that you can't like one day be proficient in something, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, and it is, it is the case that many of the words in ACT are slightly made up. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot that it's okay to just say, I don't know what that means. And yeah. likely somebody will say, oh yeah, I know that's an ACT word. <laughs> completely fabricated. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, and I, I liked how, um, actually, I just recently spoke with Bill Follett and he, he helped me oh. kind of understand how, yeah, he's such a such a dear and and he, he's saying how you know there's that those those words are are those mid-level terms are are not as as kind of tainted as a lot of other of our vocabulary you know right which is was helped and hurt eventually to yeah. some degree yeah yeah was at the 1995 i'm sure you uh, do you still have like that image of robin in your head of oh yeah she yeah. looks exactly the same okay <laughs> is that, that woman younger... does not age no <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and she ended up being like 
a very very dear friend nice. she introduced me to my husband like a really? million years later and yes like a wonderful serendipity on so many levels that i ended up in that class but yeah. um yeah crazy and a little bit of sort of more hubris i think than i normally would have that i called him up and was like i would like to go to your workshop <laughs> <laughs> well i'm glad you did yeah i do think it speaks though that you know, there is something about this, um, these ideas, these sort of third wave ideas that, you know, when you live in a world that says, just think differently, just think differently, just think differently, just change the thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you are the kind of person that he, that that doesn't connect for, patient or therapist, like, I do think there's something just so impactful about hearing this other way of thinking about it and 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 maybe that is just some of us have those spots and I mean I I certainly felt that way when I heard originally about act yeah yeah you were you were lit up yeah Robin did a good job of selling she did she did <laughs> yeah it always makes me think of we I once um went to see the Dalai Lama speak uh here in California Mm -hmm. And it was at an outside venue and it was just beautiful. Everything about it was just, you know, what you would imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and he was there to speak about compassion and compassion sort of across religious ideologies and belief systems. And um, I'll never forget when we were walking in the doors, there were people, I'm not sure of their faith, but some fundamentalists, I think Christian, but I'm not sure who were holding signs that said, um, basically, you will go to hell mm -hmm. for going to attend this speech by the Dalai Lama. And um, he did a little Q&A at the end and said, um, somebody raised their hand and said, hey, did you see the people with the signs out mm -hmm. front? And if so, what did you think? And he said, you know, I think they're it's fabulous. Like some people need the message to be kind of, you have to do this and you can't do this. And mm. some people need the message to be love and compassion. Mm. And some people need the message to be that, that you know, that maybe just we're sort of born with or develop pretty early on this sort of way that we respond best to a message. and. Um, I always think about that in terms of like my moment of sitting in Robin's class and feeling like there was this epiphany mm -hmm. that, you know, for whatever reason, that way spoke to me in a way that other models didn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and certainly most of us who have done trainings or been at trainings, like see that happen yeah. with other clinicians and students. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So that's a, a very functional response, functionally appropriate response that he's, it's in line with his message of, of his talk that day. Right, yeah. right. The, the, the verbal behavior gets to sort of function as well. Like uh -huh. we all have our stories, certainly, but also that, you know, we're, we're going to move in a way that works for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and speaking of verbal behavior, when you, how, how, how do you think, how is, how, how is it helpful for people to start to think about words as behavior and? Well, I, I think 
it's helpful. The way that it makes the most sense to me is that if you can think about words as behavior, then you get all of these different response classes associated with them. Okay. And, and that is easier. If, if we can be thinking about this as a response class, then it is so much easier to think about having some ability to respond this way or that way, respond differently in terms of response class okay. versus if we think about thoughts as content. If we think about thoughts as content, then I think it, it gets us stuck with whatever content is there. If we think mm -hmm. about it in terms of response class, then we can do all of these different things. And you know, the metaphor, of course, that we often use in ACT, but I think just makes sense, has to do with physical space and movement. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if, I'll, I'll give a clinical example. I have a patient right now who uh, is, I mostly work with people who are medically sick. So um, these days that's a lot of people with cancer. And I have a patient who the other day had a dream that she got a message that she was gonna die before Christmas. Pretty, you know, not terribly uncommon content wise. Um, but if that thought, cause it's the thought after the dream for her mm -hmm. that is particularly salient. If that thought if we focus on the response there, that behavior, then we get to play around with it. Then we get to move sort of how she responds to it. Okay. Rather than needing the dream to have been different, which she doesn't have any control over. Yeah. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit more about how you do that or how you did that? Well, I think it probably depends a lot on different things in yeah. different cases. So in this yeah. case, yeah. for her, she's, I, I tend to think about this as um, being related to, if you think about a three-term contingency, if you think about, and there's an antecedent, there's mm -hmm. this response part to it, and then there's the consequent. Like it, the, in a way, the dream and the content and the um, sort of more emotional evocative piece of it for her is the first part of that contingency and so if if she's super oriented to that first part of the contingency lots of fear lots of uh, i'm gonna die i'm gonna uh -huh. die i'm gonna die that content then i think you know that's when all of this avoidance responding comes up and so for her the, the key has been focusing more on the end of the contingency, focusing more on the consequence, thinking about how she responds, not as much to this emotional evocative part of the response, but in terms of how does she want to be now? Okay. Because she has, you know, these number of days until Christmas, she has a family, she has kids. Mm -hmm. If 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 we can pull some of the focus to the consequent, then it allows her to to you know again using physical space as a metaphor back up enough to think about kind of how she wants to respond to it. Not different than what you might say you would do from an act perspective, but it's sometimes helpful to think about 
I find it's helpful for me to think about antecedents and consequences so that I can help people shift to how's it going to go long term? What's the overarching okay. positive reinforcer that you could contact rather than the negative reinforcer that you're trying to contact? I see. Which the, the negative reinforcer there is this this antecedent thinking and let's talk about the dream. And yeah, like if the, the dream, dream is like, uh, yeah, like if we focus on that antecedent, on the intent, on that, like what she's doing to try to manage that emotion, mm -hmm. then, you know, we might get some short-term relief, which is what all of her spinning is about, is about short-term relief. But if we can God, focus on- God, I love on... me some short-term relief. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's, it's the best. Oh, don't get me started in this COVID days. It's all short-term relief. But I think like if, if you can think about that longer-term positive reinforcer, then I think that's, I mean, for her, that's, like she's completely not even got that on the radar because she's so focused on relieving this antecedent distress high content okay i'm I, i'm sorry i got lost on trying to to um avoid some short-term relief and make some more <laughs> short-term relief jokes <laughs> and then i and then i couldn't focus good. on what you were saying <laughs> it's all good <laughs> i think we could all do that endlessly right now oh for my gosh. sure yeah okay so um but this language so what you're talking about here is like a functional uh, assessment a functional analysis however absolutely you know, and I, I think i just want to reiterate that's part of the impetus for this project here is because when i you know i'm five years into my journey here in <clears throat> in acts in this cbs world and you know a certain kind of like uh threads that you pick up on and one, a couple of them were, that I pick up on is like this functional assessment piece, right? And um, probably didn't read enough, you know, I'll throw that out there. But like in my trainings and, you know, I just, I feel like I would hear people say, oh, you, you need to, you know, do a functional assessment to see what to do. And then, but I, I guess I didn't find enough people talking about how the heck to do that, right? you know, on the fly. Right. Well, and I think some of, re I suspect some of why you haven't, not enough people talking about how explicitly to do that is because I don't think that's a huge strength in ACT. Okay. Because functional assessment, functional analysis means, you know, at its kind of core means testing it. Yeah. Yeah. Figuring out what the actual function is. That's why I meant to say assessment, the kind of, right. you know, right. yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think that, you know, thinking about that in ACT, we shortcut it a little bit. Like we say, oh, it's avoidance. <laughs> mm. Oh, it's avoidance, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Yeah. And so I think being thoughtful about the function is something, one, that's hard to do. It's hard to teach. It's hard to sort of think about how to do that. And then also, even within this community that really values this, we're not great at it because we have this particular hammer okay and we shortcut that everything's yeah. that nail is, is there a danger in that like treating everything as um you know with basically exposure yes i think so because some i think it just it's inefficient okay I, I i think we do it because it often is um but there are times when behaviors are maintained by social reinforcers or mm -hmm. other things that are not um related to avoidance that we probably miss okay. if we're focused so much on one particular class as i see 
the thing that is going on. So you you look at class, you you think very kind of uh, you group things in, in classes as you're working with someone. You're you're just are you just kind of like stockpiling different things and thinking, okay, I'm going to put them in this cupboard as in the avoidance class. Is that probably how your mind works? I guess. I mean, I don't know how verbal that is in the moment. Okay. I think when people, you know, so much of what happens in the therapy room, you get to see in vivo what the function is. Like mm -hmm. some people will, you know, orient to me and try to say what they think I want them to say. I have noticed, I, I worked at the mm -hmm. VA for a long time at the VA hospital and um, I will never forget, I was doing this ACT group once um, in a men's PTSD rehab program. So it was guys with primarily at the time, this was early 2000s, um, primarily uh, um, vets from the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So um, who maybe had been struggling for years and years without a lot of help, without a lot of attention. And then often what would happen is guys would retire and then their symptoms would exacerbate and then they'd end up in this um, more intensive program. Hey, you're, but, you just reminded me of something. I want to really quickly see if I can cut you off because you're oh, yeah. no, I'm not cut you off. <laughs> I'm thinking of you five years after you got in, you went to the mountain, you know, and you didn't know what the word experiential was. And you're like, here you are leading these these guys. How there awesome. you go. A and B, don't use the word experiential with your clients if you're listening to this, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Two sorry. very, yes, both accurate points. Yes. So this guy came into our group and he said, um, he, he said he, he wanted to be in the group and I don't, I don't know if he thought maybe he wasn't going to be in the group or that there was some risk that he was going to, he had to prove something to be in the group, but I'll never forget. We were asking people kind of what he what they struggled with. And this guy said, um, mostly what I struggle with is accepting and committing. <laughs> that was what he and it, it it's a good example to in my mind of like you know people say things in therapy that have all different functions yeah like that was not he was not avoiding mm -hmm. he was mm -hmm. trying to stay in the group he was trying to get attention he was yeah. sometimes you know sometimes mm -hmm. it functions to mm -hmm. um, reduce that antecedent distress and sometimes it has a whole <laughs> different function that we're totally missing if we're just thinking about things as avoidance <laughs> How did you respond sometimes, huh? <laughs> it was just like, oh, that is so incredibly sweet. Sounds like you want to be in this group. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder, like, what, what do you think about clients, um, like, knowing a whole heck of a lot about ACT and mindfulness before doing the work I with think you? it's funny. Um, sometimes when patients know a lot, particularly about mindfulness, mm -hmm. It can be helpful because they have an ability to come to the present and a bit more awareness of their moment to moment experience. I think okay. when people have an awareness of their moment to moment experience, mm -hmm. it's a shortcut for us yeah. in terms of what's there for us to do. Um, I think sometimes, like I had a patient once who was referred to me as one of my very favorite patients I've ever had. Um, he was referred to me because he was in, in 
incredible distress when he found out about a particularly bad cancer diagnosis. And um, actually he attempted suicide when he found out about the diagnosis. So lots and lots and lots of distress. He ends up with me um, and he does not particularly want to see me. He, I think, you know, was still probably pretty seriously contemplating suicide and didn't particularly didn't want to talk about it. Um, and he, he came in and we had a conversation and then he came in the next session and said, so I Googled you, which, you know, patients do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he was a very bright man and proceeded to give me a very lengthy description of the challenges of between um, acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive therapy and how, you know, the, you know, mechanisms were slightly different. And like he had a very, very erudite and very Mm -hmm. smart response to sort of seeing that. And for him, you know, eventually what we got to in the therapy is that that also had multiple functions. One function was that he wanted to impress me. He wanted me to think that he was smart. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did kind of think he was smart. And I did, I was impressed by his research. And the other function was for him to not have to feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That being in a room with me, Mm -hmm. with any therapist, increased this incredibly aversive experience of vulnerability for him. And he really wanted it even back out. He really wanted me not to be having control that he, he wanted to have. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I think them having a patients, having a background knowledge is fabulous. And sometimes it functions to try to reduce the experience of what can happen in the room. And, and on that, I just, you know, I would assume that, you know, he probably didn't know that's what he was doing. I'm just going to oh. throw that out there. No, it was so you know? cute. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, he was incredibly, he, he, for him, there was a problem, which was he would not have named as vulnerability, mm-hmm. but eventually we got to was named vulnerability. Yeah. And he went about solving it the way he yeah. went about solving everything. And I say that because, you know, I, I just, I, you know, and I hear therapists talk about clients in ways that, you know, they know they kind of, they have an objective or know, you know, know what they're necessary, like, you know, what the consequences of their behavior are. And, you know, you know, kind of this, like, just they need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and, you know, get off their butts. And um, so I just, I just don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, well, I will say this, I mean, I would say that this particular man with all of his like <laughs> gonna not be vulnerable and that with that again i agree i don't think he had any awareness of i think mm-hmm. it caused all kinds of problems in his life that he wasn't aware of and he to his extreme credit he just kept showing up and kept coming back and like did the most extraordinary things like some of the most extraordinary things I've ever wow. seen patients do, you know, these, these clients where that like, yeah. you know, you yeah. don't, you don't get, you don't, you, there's something about people coming back and saying like, let me tell you about these ways that I live my values that yeah. I wasn't living them before. Yeah. And that I, I did this and yeah. just like so extraordinary. Yeah. 
to, to be a, to be a part of that and witness. Yeah. I just, um, you know, I just left my job of, uh, close to five years and, um, you know, had some real good goodbyes with some clients who I've been working with for a long time and just, um, just to be able to really, really lean into and focus on some of the, some growth that they've, they've had and, and have that, that meaningful goodbye was just so, so beautiful. Yeah. 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 And um, so um, the other thing that, that I think is speaking of this in the same kind of vein, I think there's kind of a cliche word around mindfulness, which is a term I should say is letting go. And um, I've noticed that more recently, you know, that, you know, stuff like headspace and all these, all these, you know, our culture is becoming more, you know, you know, selling mindfulness, I guess. And, uh, and I've noticed clients kind of just like, you know, I've doing, I'm like talking about something or a metaphor and they're just like, Oh, do you mean just like, let it go? And I'm like, well, like, like I functionally, I hear it. Like they're just saying, like, it's another way that I just, you know, try to get rid of my, my thoughts. Right. I do think that that phrase functions that way for most of the people who hear it. Yeah. 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 So dangerous. I, I think like for me, I, 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 I grew up in acts, so I don't say let it go cause it's too close to avoid it in my okay. head. And I do think there's an interesting other piece that mindfulness gives us that hasn't been explored in ACT as much as it can be, which is this idea of not attaching. Like some of the time, um, I think in a more spiritual version of mindfulness, when people say let go, what they're talking about is not grasping, not attaching Mm -hmm. to anything. Stop grabbing, stop grabbing shit. Yeah, stop <laughs> grabbing shit, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I think that piece is an interesting part of the process of what happens with mindfulness in maybe in a more spiritual vein that we haven't done as much. Like ACT hasn't really moved into that part as much. Like it's, it's interesting to me that there are pockets of spiritual mindfulness that I really feel like they are steeped in ACT or act is steeped in. And then there are other parts of spiritual mindfulness, like this idea about letting go when it's about attaching, that we don't spend as much time thinking about how to translate into potentially useful clinical interventions, that that there, there are these, you know, we really focus on you know, don't avoid your negative feelings, don't just try to have positive feelings, don't, but but we don't spend as much time talking about like, sometimes when we have something cool going on, we grab it with both hands until we have strangled it. You know, like we, mm-hmm. there's this interesting um, piece that I think is what sometimes people are talking about when they talk about letting go. But I don't know, it's not fully worked out in my head, so I'm not even sure yeah. what I said just made sense, yeah. but. Yeah, no, I, I... I, I tracked some, if not all of it. And my mind was also thinking about what I was going to ask you next. So I'm not. <laughs> right on. It's all good. I'm not sure. It's not sort of fleshed out enough that it, but it is something like, I would be shocked if I don't somehow figure out some way to do a study about this in the next few years. Like, so okay. I just keep coming back to this idea that there's something about attachment that we don't use therapeutically in a way that I think might be useful. 
I don't huh. know what it is. Yeah. Well, but I wanted to get back to the the functional classes of behavior. Yes. Where, how, what, what's a useful way for people to start to kind of think about classes of behavior and would it be helpful, do you think, for, for you to name a few and, and or like where would you send someone to, to learn more about that kind of language? Well, um, in terms of the what classes there are out there, mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, the traditional experimental analysis of behavior literature, um, you know, focuses on um, in nonverbal humans and in animals that a lot of times those classes have to do with sort of gaining an appetitive or escaping an aversive mm-hmm. or like that, you know, you can think about them just in terms of reinforcement and punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you apply that to, I think the way it's been applied in applied behavior analysis, for instance, includes things like, you know, um, more autonomic responding, more like um, avoiding pain and um, self-stimulating mm-hmm. responses mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, I think as you go up in sort of a clinical ladder of complexity of problems, I think you, some of those classes are too simplistic. Okay. Um, Lisa Coyne, uh, who uh, is a collaborator of mine sometimes, has a wonderful way of talking about this, which is, you know, you do, you get. You do something, you get something. Mm-hmm. And, and tra- helping clients think thoughtfully about you do, you get, helps get at function even once you get up to these pretty complex classes of behavior, okay. like I, I do, I pick up my <laughs> slightly inappropriate mug. <laughs> I just realized as it was halfway over here, <laughs> you, you, I pick up my mug. Is that, is that the cartoon, the family guy guy? It is from um, Cleveland. Uh, no, it does kind of look like Cleveland. It is actually, um, <laughs> It's much more inappropriate than that. It is um, from, uh, oh my gosh, I'm of course blanking on the name of it. It is from Rick and Morty, which is a cartoon that is very inappropriate. (laughs) This is the client um, in a session that a friend sent us Hmm. um, that involves a therapist who treats people who eat feces. (laughs) I'll have to check that one out. I've enjoyed a few of those episodes. This is, um, yeah, this is the best episode, I will say. I mean, this is a gift from my husband and kids and it's on the back it says how long have you been eating poop (laughs) (laughs) Nice, which is not the most appropriate mug for this example but nonetheless so those like other people have bottles of water that say love on them (laughs) (laughs) harmony Uh, every mug that i have is from my kids or my husband and they are like more inappropriate than the last like every one of the things around me just says things that are nice not appropriate for work anyways okay (laughs) i digress so you do you get you Uh i i do this i i have them you know i get Mm -hmm. i put this to my lips i get the coffee the the you know i bark at my daughter i get sort of her reaction back it that our sort of reactivity for lack of a better word just to make it a verb Mm -hmm. to the content of what we're experiencing 
brings with it these response these functional classes these things that happen this is what you get you mm -hmm. you do you get you feel vulnerable and you lean in you get connection you feel vulnerable you lean out you get isolation like the so our job is to help to pe see people see that not the, sh the short-term relief that they're getting which yeah. keeps them in that that's the reinforcing nature of this right right that short term that antecedent focus like if you're focused on the vulnerability and its aversive properties and you pull back then you get some short-term relief but if you're focused on this kind of hidden i always like put it behind me when i'm talking to to patients like mm. there's this whole other thing back here which is the positive reinforcer that's there okay. and so i i don't know if that's a great answer to the yeah. specific question that you asked but i do think like our job as these behaviors get more and more complex it is more than just um you know is it self-stimulating or is it does it you know we want to be thinking yeah. about like what is the positive reinforcer what is the yeah. consequent end of that contingency and how do we keep pulling people's eyes there okay so it's one pulling their eyes there and then also helping them to learn how focusing just on the antecedent and the avoidance of the antecedent um, <clears throat> or control of the antecedent um, is impacting their life yeah. as part of the learning process. Yeah, that short-term relief, long-term awesomeness kind of. Okay. And now that short-term relief isn't sometimes really awesome because it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. I found that it's it's... You know, the challenge of for me as a, a new person and, and I've gotten better over time, but it's like, um, you know, leading someone through this and not, you know, explaining someone through this. Yeah. Well, my favorite strategy and any one of my patients for the last million years can would would describe this about me. My favorite strategy is to physicalize it. Mm. Just because I, again, I think that metaphor of space and is is one that is very easy to translate mm -hmm. to to make it not explaining. So you know, if if you say, you know, I am worried about my mug, <laughs> or I am, you know, worried about this, or I am sad about this, like being able to kind of I don't have my selfie on, so I don't know if you can see this, but like, yeah, 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 make it a thing that you know every therapy room has tissue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so you know, there we oh, there's always a prop. I feel like I, mean, I thought and, that's what radical behavioralism was. You don't you don't have tissues in your office. <laughs> that's true. You don't <laughs> hand them. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> right, and there's always like something that you can kind of create a, a physical metaphor for what that content is and then play with the space yeah. and and it allows for you know like you can focus on this and if you're focused on this then eliminating this is the only important thing but what if you know if we move around the room like there's other things that matter yeah and um, so that's my <laughs> and my patients you know a lot of my patients have chronic uh medical illness who mm -hmm. are told that they're going to die and then sometime you know sometimes 10 years later they do mm -hmm. who live with this kind of big fear all the time um and because of that they come in and out of 
uh, my schedule. And so, you know, they will all say like, get the tissue box. I need like to like figure out what they are. I need to define it. And, and I think that's, I mean, for me, the, if the content that the evocative distress that's there, once you can make that physical, then you get to change how you respond to it. That gives us this little space of freedom in, okay. to me. If you, wait, if you can change how you respond to it, that's what you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how important do you think it is when, after you've walked someone through that, 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 you know, embodying physical process to kind of, for them to understand what just happened? Um, how important like, is it? Oh, I guess, I don't know. That's, that's part of my question, but also like, I'm wondering, like, you know, I feel like when I've witnessed people, different people act in act and, and, and work, it's like, there's, you know, obviously different styles and that's, I'm not definitely, I'm not a proponent of everyone being the same character sure of, of somebody or someone else. And, but just like, you know, taking that with them in, in without, without like, over explaining, you know, without like taking the magic out of what just happened. Yeah. I don't well, know if you're hearing what I'm asking, hopefully, because I'm not sure I, I am. am. Okay, I, I am, I think. I mean, I I think there's something for me about physicalizing it mm -hmm. that allows me to have to explain it less. Okay. If, if you just think about like, what's the most distressing thing that happened today? It doesn't have to be big. Wow, oh, I've got a big one. I don't know, it's a big one. My, my, my daughter fell and cut oh. her hand up, but it, it was, she's five and it was, uh, it was like a slow motion fall, but when she got up, you know, and we had just gone out for a little walk, the three of us to go, you know, oh. my son and my daughter and um, had her, had some blood and it was a big, it was a big deal. Oh, and, and what, what was the feeling that was there for you? Um, I felt, I guess I felt sadness. I felt sadness for her, you know, and just like the, you know, the, 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 the most, I don't know how to describe, I'm not good at, you know, I, how do I, I felt pain seeing her in pain, you know, the, the empathy, I guess is, I guess the one word I could use. Yeah. Right. Like it was like heart squeezing Yeah. to see her yeah. hurt. Yeah. Right. So that like, heart squeezing experience if 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 that becomes important to not have which it doesn't sound like it was at all mm -hmm. um then you know then you have to not go on walks then you have to like mm -hmm. not let her have any freedom not yeah. let her fall down or yell at her stop yeah. crying yeah right right and like if if controlling this is the most important thing then we're stuck hmm. and like this is okay like this is what happened for you today i mean something else happened for her mm -hmm. but this is what happened for you today and so once you can sort of move around, then there's, there might be something different there. And, and I, that's probably more than I would explain it with a patient. Okay. Yeah. But I think like the, the figuring out, like I would assess what is the, what is the experience? 
which usually is something scarier or more difficult or more painful than that. Uh-huh. But like, what is the experience? And then I would assess maybe like where you at uh-huh. sort of with respect to it. Yeah. And like, if, if we weren't here, mm-hmm. like what else is going on? Okay. What is, what is controlling this prevent? And I, I might assess that. Okay. Yeah. And as you're doing that, I'm wondering, Jen, if, do you have the like hardcore behavioral words going on in your head? Often. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the moment. Okay. I mean, I think probably on my best days, I could define behaviorally exactly what's going on. As those days you're not eating poop? <laughs> those days I'm not eating poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right so on my non-poop eating days I got them and and I mean I do think for me it is emotion like that I'm concerned about their experience of emotion in Mm -hmm. the room with me I'm experiencing I'm concerned about my experience of emotion that I am here able and willing to like have that be here Mm-hmm. and help them find it in their body if they can and you know sort of call it out as a as a piece as yeah. something as something physical yeah and and that's i would say more where i'm i am in my heart and my mind in the moment yeah okay yeah and i guess i ask because i'm you know at a place in wondering and I and 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 it's something I, I I keep asking folks and that's like how much do you think that someone has to be steeped in you know operant and respondent conditioning to to um apply act or I think it's a, or, I, I think it's a good question I would say for act I think you have to understand it w- well enough to understand the difference between negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement okay and, and I think you have to understand classical conditioning enough to understand whether the person is kind of super focused on antecedent. I mean, I mean that's still um, operant conditioning, but I think that mm-hmm. there is something powerful about that pairing that happens as well, that are, you know, we have these conditioned responses to our antecedent, powerful antecedents sometimes, that if you know classical conditioning well enough to know and operant conditioning well enough to know that there is this antecedent and that it is powerfully paired with a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that piece, I don't think people have to understand a complex relational frame theory analysis of everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. I do think there's something useful about being able to help people connect to this is content that is not me and that piece understanding it behaviorally requires some rft okay but i don't think you need to be able to understand it behaviorally to do amazing act i've seen people do amazing act who do not understand Hmm. some of the behavioral technology okay um yeah i appreciate that and uh do you have uh Mm-mm. Any any like 
things that come to mind? Any any works that that are good for people to go to for getting the what is would be the I guess maybe the bare minimum is not the best term, but getting a, a sufficient <clears throat> understanding of of those those fundamental behavioral thoughts. I think I tend to think that the person who there's two people I think describe it well, mm-hmm. like that that describe it in a way that people can connect to and understand yeah and those are emily sandoz i think just has a way of talking about this that is more sophisticated than most of us um and yvonne's yvonne barnes holmes i think she has because she has so much clinical understanding and so much rft Mm -hmm. and, and i would say they they serve different functions as well i think emily can talk about behavioral principles um, in a comprehensive way that allows people to understand kind of more thinking about things in terms of aversive and appetitive. So mm-hmm. kind of what I what I tend to think about as um, negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement. Um, and I think Yvonne can talk about sort of an, that analysis within an RFT understanding in a way that is among the most sophisticated. Okay. And, and um, so that would entail going to some trainings or finding. Yeah. I think they both do a fair amount of writing too. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly there's probably a million grades of how much exposure you can get to Mm -hmm. both of their brilliantness. Um, But I, I, I don't, think you have to like go spend intensive study I think just getting some exposure at the ACBS conference or through some of their writing I think can really influence how people think about things cool thank you um and I I once heard you say something that really um just I, I I loved and it was so it was so simple, yet there was so much there. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that. And I probably, the, the, the exact words you used are probably inaccurate because I have this memory that makes me look dumb sometimes. So the, uh, but it was around this topic of grief, you know, you've talked about working with folks who have a terminal illness and, um, and you said that you are, you're good at holding pain. Yeah. I mean, I think, You had mentioned that to me and I was like, oh, that sounds very immodest. I I suspect, I I think what I would say is I can be sad. I can be really sad and it is not the most uncomfortable experience for me. Yeah. I don't know if this is the context that I said it in, but um, I have a very salient experience. example of when I sort of noticed that, which was that I was at a funeral of one of my patients. Mm. You can stop me if I told you this story before, but Mm. I was at a funeral of one of my patients and it was a patient that I profoundly cared about and loved. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I tend to have some extremely intense experiences with my patients because I tend to be there all the way up through the end of their life. And uh, I had been with this woman on the day she died and um, was at her funeral not that long after. And, you know, funerals are tricky when you're a therapist. And so, you know, I often go in a way that 
keeps my, you know, different therapists have different feeling about whether or not you should go. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go in a way that kind of makes me as low profile as possible. I try to get there right after it started and leave right before it ends and kind of stay in the back and kind of stay down. Mm-hmm. And so I can hold the confidentiality, but I can still do my own grieving. And um, this the person doing this funeral, the officiant of this funeral, clearly did not know her. And um, so he was telling stories mostly about himself and the room was extremely hot and extremely crowded and really uncomfortable. And I was in the back standing because I had come in late. And um, I remember standing there and thinking, I'm really hot and I'm really uncomfortable. Like I wanna sit down and I'm really annoyed because mm-hmm. the guy speaking didn't know her mm-hmm. and I'm really sad yeah um just at the loss of her in the world and I I remember kind of having the thought like the only one that I of those I don't need to solve is being sad <laughs> like, like I probably am mm-hmm. gonna need to sit down at some point and I'm might need to take this jacket off and mm-hmm. it might punch, need to punch this guy in the face or pull <laughs> I need to like start clapping like it's over. And... <laughs> good job, good job. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I I I do think like maybe maybe particularly because of the population that I work with. Um but I have all you know, I'm a kid who cry I was a kid who cried a lot, mm. which now as a parent, I have so much sympathy for my parents. Um, that that must have been so hard for them. Um, but I, I think my feelings are close enough to the surface generally Mm -hmm. that they're not so scary. Maybe. Mm -mm. Was like, you're holding this for them. You're helping You're you're, you're like, I'm, I'm, you're sharing the space and you're holding, you're opening up and like holding their sadness for them. With them, with I them. would say. Yeah. That, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah I think and, with them in a way, I think that's often what really good therapy is. That, okay. That, you know, the, the experience in the room is that the emotion comes in yeah. and is there and that it, it doesn't have to be solved and it doesn't have to be handled and you know, no, nobody's ever had a permanent feeling. Hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the things that we do when we're oriented to the antecedent side of the equation is to manage something that is going to come and go. Yeah. So, so like functionally speaking, what's happening there in in working with someone who's in a high level of grief, let's say, and you're as a therapist, just just creating a space for it and hold like, you know, holding it with them. Right. And, and I'm not talking about like you're explaining all of this, but just, you know, right. energetically and emotionally. Right. I, I think functionally for them, like if it's you do, you get, you have this experience. One of the functions of, of sitting with that is sort of shifting now, if you think about this person's repertoire, sometimes you've added for the first time to their repertoire this response of not responding. Uh. 
of sitting with. Yeah. Okay. And and this response class of like letting it simmer Mm -hmm. without sort of anything sometimes allows for a subsequent behavior by them also in that class that allows for this more consequence-based shifting towards moving towards positive reinforcers. Yeah. Okay. But sometimes they don't even have that in their repertoire. Yeah. One of the the things that I'm very aware of is that I don't want, you know, my clients to become dependent on me. I want like the work that we do to be able to generalize so that they can, you know, find other places in their life where they can do what you just said. Yeah. Not just with me. Right. Right. Well, and I, I would say, I think if you can expand a repertoire to include things like, Hey, find it in your body. Hey, what's that? Mm -hmm. What happens if you hang out for a minute? Like then you know, for some people, you may have to explicitly maybe explain it too much. So okay. for some people, you might, you might have to say like, okay, now go try this here. Yeah. And other people, once they have that experience in their repertoire, it expands. Okay. So you gotta, so you gotta be, not be a robot or, or a cookie cutter. Yeah. I wish clinician. that there was some way to know. <laughs> right. But I mean, you watch like sometimes people connect to this work so powerfully and mm-hmm. then you watch and they come back and they have done these amazing things and you're like oh my gosh yeah cool so. um all right well i've just had a uh, as we as we wind down here um was just wondering you know you you just published this book with lisa coin and matt boone yes. it's called stop avoiding stuff yes and is avoidance ever functional oh yes all okay. the time all right cool I often like prescribe like People magazine. <laughs> yeah. You might get some oh, yes. email now after, after saying Lots that. and lots and lots of times. It works yeah. perfectly fine. Okay. All right. Cool. So um, who's this book for? Well, so this book is funny. Uh, um, Matt Boone worked for this um, healthcare company, this behavioral healthcare company out here mm-hmm. um, for a number of years. And they had this um, public facing blog of just like, you know, getting different psychologists and social workers and mental health people to write um, kind of short blogs on different, whatever topic they wanted. Yeah. And Matt had invited, he wrote some of these blogs. He'd invited me to write some of these blogs. He'd invited Lisa to write some of these blogs. And, um, you know, it was really fun to just Mm -hmm. think about some of these complex things and try to think about how to talk about it in a really brief way, in kind of short paragraphs, mm-hmm. in, um, you know, with a personal story and like, you know, like trying to make it something that would be a little bit more accessible to people than the way that we tend to write about these things. Mm-hmm. And, and we had been doing this for maybe like a year and he came to Lisa and I and said, this is really fun do you want to write a whole book of these? Should we write a whole book of these, the Mm -hmm. three of us? And we are dear friends and never get to see each other because we live kind of scattered across Mm -hmm. the country. And so for over a year, every other Friday morning at 
what turned out to be 6 a.m. West Coast time, okay. we met and kind of wrote this book full of like blog posts, basically. Um, we wrote 20, like we took, you know, what, what we think of as good clinical skills and broke them down into 25 little tiny skills mm -hmm. and wrote sort of what were supposed to be bite-sized, easily accessible chapters yeah. on each one. Cool. Yeah. And, In and, fact, and, we and... call it, not to like keep, you know, <laughs> I think I'm going to be sort of <laughs> revealing things about myself based on my mug and now this, but we called it the app act bathroom book. Like it's supposed to be just <laughs> like this, a very short, easily read and consumed yeah. chapters. For clinicians. You know, no, I mean, I think it's sort of, it was mostly, I guess, patient focused uh -huh. um, or just whoever focuses general self-help. We have heard back that clinicians have been utilizing it both in terms of take, you know, using the skills in their therapy, mm -hmm. but also like assigning because the chapters are so little, um, you know, sort of assigning this as backup for what they're talking about in their sessions. Okay. But it's not specifically for anybody as much as like, it was a fun book to write. Cool. Nice. Well, this has been great. I really, it was so fun talking to you. And, um, you know, I, I think that I've observed you on the, on the screens, but I don't, we've, we've never, definitely never met. And um, yeah. it's, this is, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for, for lending yeah. your voice to this project. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And it's super nice to meet you. And yeah. Yeah, I hope I tried to like give stories in case you were yeah no feeling yeah, off or yeah. <laughs> I hope that was okay. When, but... Why would I feel off, Jen? What kind of <laughs> what kind of comment is that? Um, <laughs> um, you didn't I want to seem just... off at all, but I was yeah. worried that if you were, that I wouldn't know. So I was like, you can always cut this out. So my my function. So my my uh, comment before we started recording about you know. I'm having a few couple of rough days fun function to, to function help you too. take care of me. Yes. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, so yeah, stop avoiding stuff is out on the shelves and I'll put a, I'll put a picture and a, a link to a new harbinger. And so, okay. um, you've also got a diabetes book out from um, like a million years ago, nine years ago. I just want to mention, I've got this other side project. That's a little bit slower moving, but it's another podcast that I, I talk to folks who uh, are, I think should be celebrated for the work they've done in terms of helping our global tribe um, evolve on purpose. And I recently interviewed Le Moon Wah, who's um, the director of The Color of Fear. He's one of your Bay, Bay Area yeah, yeah. folks. Yeah, yeah. I've mm -hmm. heard of him. I don't know him. Yeah, yeah. He's he's fabulous. Just absolutely fabulous. And so the, the podcast is called Honorable Evolution for anybody to check out. Cool. So, all right. Awesome. It was so nice to yeah. have a conversation with you yeah. and uh, hang out. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me. But I'm getting stronger. They take a piece of me.